Welcome to Unhindered Promise of Victory. Welcome. Praise the Lord. Look at your neighbor before we get started this morning and say, you're going to be glad you sat there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's my goal this morning is for you to make your neighbor glad that they sit near you. Because I want to, I want to reveal some things about yourself that you probably don't give yourself enough credit for. Can I say amen from somebody? I, uh, and let me just tell you, I'm testifying. I'm not just picking on you. Uh, if anybody is, is worse at self-deprecating than I am, um, well, there's a couple of you that's worse. I'm not going to call any names, but you know who you are. Um, there's a few of you that beat yourself up worse than I do, but it, I, I, I'm good at, at calling myself being humble, and, and yet really just uh, insulting the manufacturer that made me. Hello? See, the Bible says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And a lot of times I insult the maker because I am who I am because this is the way he made me. And for me to uh, always talk down about the product doesn't really speak about myself. It really speaks about the one who made me. And I know some of you well enough to know that a few of you are worse than I am at that. And I was doing that with God this morning. This wasn't part of my sermon originally, but I was praying this morning, and I was, I was telling God about what a low-down, rotten skunk I am, and I don't have any business preaching this word, and, and, and how he should have picked somebody else, and, I, and calling myself, humbling myself before the Lord. And it was almost like God, I don't know how God talks to you or how he reacts to you, but sometimes God, God takes me out behind the woodshed and gives me what for because he needs me to remember that he's the one in charge and I'm not. All the way back in second grade, did you have Miss Bookie, Amanda? Do you remember Miss Bookie in second grade? I remembered while I'm sitting here telling God about how I don't deserve to preach and I don't know why anybody would come and hear me, I could... I remembered Miss Bookie, my second grade language arts teacher, standing in front of the class, jumping on me for not being able to sit still, keep my hands to myself, and or keep my lips shut, because all three of those things all kind of run together all through my childhood. I used to get report cards sent home constantly. He's, he's brilliant. He makes great grades, but he won't sit still. He is a real uh, master at the, at, the, uh, at the math and at the language arts, but he can't shut up. And I could, he couldn't keep his hands to himself. My mom used to get those out every Christmas and remind me of all the times that they told me I couldn't. And I remember Miss Bookie, it was as if God opened up the portals of heaven and put a TV screen in my prayer life this morning. And I remembered Miss Bookie telling me, you need to learn at some point that nobody just wants to sit and listen to you talk all the time. Well, Miss Bookie, <laughs> I don't know where you are these days, but I'd like, behold, <laughs> all these people sitting and <laughs> listening to me talk. <laughs> Bless the Lord. That's why when my, my wife gets up here and preaches, I, 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 um, uh, people ask me all the time, I bet you're proud of her, and I am, and, and, and it's because I know the process that it took for her to get up here. Uh, it, you see the product, 
but I know the process that it takes to get the product out. And so when she gets up here and, and puts her inhibitions behind her because she's very much like me too, she calls herself being humble and really she's just insulting the manufacturer. I'm trying to get out of that. If you're, I'm trying to talk my way. I, I, I verbal process through things and I'm trying to verbally process myself and to quit insulting myself because when I insult me, I insult the one who called me as if he didn't know what he was doing. And the reason I bring all that up is because unless you understand that God knows exactly who you are, what you're made of, and what he got when he got you, you're not going to connect with this sermon this morning. Unhindered, part five, I'm going to preach a sermon this morning called Believing Enough to Ask Big. I, I, I want you to, to grab hold of something that I have wrestled with my entire Christian walk because The opinion you hold of yourself will hold you back from believing for big things. When you don't believe you deserve it, when you don't believe that you should get it, when you believe that you... Some of us believe that miracles and prayer answers are like a gigantic cosmic pie. And if you get a slice, that means somebody else missed out. And by the way, that's what society is going toward now. Everybody's trying to get away from capitalism and into socialism because they act like if I've got $100, it means you don't have any. And so that's what a lot of us believe when we pray. We pray that somebody else will get the blessing because we don't believe we deserve one. We pray that somebody else gets a breakthrough and a healing because surely God would not see me like that. I, I want to I get down into that this morning and help you if you'll go with me. Will you go with me this morning? Amen? Amen? I got three of you. The Bible says there are two or three are gathered in my name, so I got enough. We're going to read Job 42 and 2 together. This is the scripture that we have been standing on all year long. That's what this uh, sermon series is based upon, is Job 42 and 2. We've been reading it together. I don't know that we're going to do this every week, but we are going to do it this week. Ready, read. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be hindered. Hence the name of our sermon series, Unhindered. Uh, We were gone out of town all week. We were at camp meeting in Beckley, West Virginia. And uh, while I was there, I was thinking about this sermon, uh, not only this sermon, but the ones coming after it. And I started thinking about some of the songs we sing. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses of one of the songs that we sing. We've sang it for years, and we sing it a lot. Walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. But you have never, this is singing to God, you have never what? Failed me yet. Waiting for change to come. Knowing the battles won. For you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. I am still in your hands. This is my confidence you have never failed me yet and then he says I know the night won't last your word will come to pass that's what Job just told us Job said nothing that you want to do can be hindered we sing a song in this sanctuary 
written by Elevation Worship, and we sing that song, and we belt it out, and tears fall, fall down our faces, and here's what we say. You've never failed me yet. I know the night won't last. Your word will come to pass. Why do we sing songs we don't believe? Why, why do we, I mean, I see you. When we praise and worship, I see you. Tears come down your face. You are into it. You are engaged. You believe it in that moment. You believe when you sing the words, I know the night won't last. You believe it because you're standing in the day. You're standing in the light. But as soon as night comes, you stop believing things that you have professed with your own lips. And you act like, I'm never going to get out of this. My family's never coming out of this night season. I cannot take any more. Does this sound like anybody I'm preaching to this morning? Or is it just me? This is the reality of our walk with Christ. If you want to know why you're hindered, you have to stop blaming the devil for everything. Because much, if not the majority of what holds us back, isn't the devil's doing. It's something that is disconnected on the inside of us. We profess with our lips theology, scripture, and ideas that we don't really believe. We believe it in a moment. But then something happens in life. And can I let you in on a little secret? Something always happens. The reason you need to, the Bible tells us, to think on the Scriptures, to meditate on the Word. The reason you need to get the Word inside of you is because there's a 110% chance that rain is going to fall. There is a 110% chance that your family will find trouble in this world. Jesus told us that you will not pass through this life without being offended and without trouble finding you. So when trouble comes, not if, but when trouble comes, you need a truth to hold on to. And so for the next four to five weeks, I'm going to be talking specifically about your faith and about prayer. Specifically trying to answer some questions about both of them. Because sometimes, let's be honest, faith and prayer seems a little bit mysterious. Do you get that? Like, I know prayer works, but I don't always know why. And when somebody, when somebody that's not a believer, or maybe somebody that is a believer, but they just don't believe like I believe, when they ask me, well, how do you know prayer works? I don't really know all the time. I told you last week if you was here. I don't feel any smarter when I get finished praying. Most of the time when I'm finished praying, I, don't, I can't physically see that anything changed. Everything still seems pretty much the same. When somebody says, what is faith? I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain. If you, don't, if you can't answer it with Scripture, and, and most of the time people don't want you to just get into Scripture. They just want to know a basic elementary, rudimentary idea. What is faith? It's hard to answer. Have you ever been asked questions like that? Has anybody ever asked you, well, does prayer even work? And if prayer works, why does this happen? Right? So I'm going to begin this morning in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Okay? But before I get over there, let me give you a little bit of background on this book. Nehemiah was a leader in the Persian kingdom, okay? He's in Persia, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is his homeland. 
But Jerusalem had been taken as slaves by the Babylonians. The Persians had overcome the Babylonians and had adopted all of the ex-Babylonian slaves. And so Nehemiah has been raised in Persia. He has worked his way up through the ranks in the Persian kingdom. Uh, His family had been taken there as slaves, but he grew up in a palace. And he had a very unique job. He was the cupbearer for the king. Now, that don't sound like a big deal. But what it actually means is that every single day, the king had put his life in Nehemiah's hands. Because in those days, kings held a very uh, desirable position. And people were always trying to knock off the king so they could become the king. And so there would often be poisonings that would happen. And they would have to guard themselves against poisonings by having someone who kept their cup. He trusted Nehemiah with his very life. This automatically tells us what we need to know about Nehemiah. He is trustworthy. He is a man of integrity. Are you tracking me? Now, we read in the book of Nehemiah that news had gotten back to Persia. And Nehemiah heard that his parents' hometown, Jerusalem, is in shambles. You have to understand, when the Babylonians came in and took all of Israel as captives, they destroyed the entire nation of the entire city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls, they tore down the temples, and they left no houses standing on their foundations. And the place is in shambles. Seventy years later... Israelites began to go back to Jerusalem. But the problem with not being engaged with passion is sometimes you'll just take whatever somebody hands you and don't really do anything important with it. These people were moving back to Jerusalem, but nobody was rebuilding anything. They were literally living in shacks. They were living in makeshift uh, apartment complexes. and they, they, Nobody was rebuilding the walls. Nobody had, been, uh, had taken the initiative to rebuild the temple. They're living in shambles. And Nehemiah heard about this, and it bothered him. I'm, I'm going to stick with that for just a moment, okay? Because my very first key element this morning to why your prayer life isn't what it should be is because you're not bothered enough. Nehemiah got bothered when he heard that his world and the condition of his world was not great, it bothered him. And part of the reason that the church is so apathetic and anemic and weak and we don't have enough power to blow our nose because we are as weak as dishwater is because... Now, this statement won't get me very popular because in 2023, you and I aren't bothered enough. We've got ambitions and passions and goals, and we got all kinds of things that we are doing outside the kingdom. But we can't be bothered enough to get in the kingdom and do some work for God. I, I, I'm going to put it to you like this. Have you ever saw a nuclear reactor somewhere? Do you know what the power that is contained in a nuclear reactor. The church is just like that. 
The church is filled with potential energy, but we are largely not using what we have because the church is filled with potential, but we are not a threat to the kingdom of darkness because we're not bothered enough by the condition of our world. I told you, this won't make me popular. This will not gain me any popularity points, but I promise you something. If mom, dad, if you got bothered enough by your... We're not even bothered enough by our own children's activities. We bring them to church and expect the youth pastor to put something into them that we have not put anything into them ourselves. We're not bothered. When we see the the division that goes on in our world, it's not just America. This division goes on all around the world. When we see the division that goes on around this world, you and I who are kingdom pick sides. Are you kidding me? Let me explain something to you about the world you live in. This is not your home. You're supposed to have your eyes into the hills from where cometh your help. We wasn't put here to stay. So we have a bigger goal than to be on the left or the right. Because I found out a long time ago, the left and the right are just two sides of the same turkey. And I don't have time to be divided away from 50% of the people who don't think like you think. I don't, because Jesus died for them too. And I can't pick sides against them when I keep my mind in the kingdom. This is the problem. See, uh, uh, half of y'all was with me and half of y'all was like, I don't know if I like that or not. That's the problem. You're not bothered by the big picture. You're bothered because people don't vote like you. You're bothered because people don't act like you. You're bothered because people are upset over stuff that you don't think they ought to be upset over. But that's not what's supposed to bother you. What's supposed to bother you is that the kingdom of darkness is winning and their souls are going to hell and you and I are the only hope they have of getting out and finding rescue. That's what needs to bother us. And we've got, the, we've got our passion displaced. Uh, I told you I wouldn't be popular over that. but Matthew chapter 10 is a scripture that I'm going to be using over the next couple of weeks. Okay, I know I'm, I told you I'm going to Nehemiah. I'll get there. But I, I want to start with Matthew chapter 10 because I'm also going to end here. Matthew 10 verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority. Authority. In the world they were living in, they were given authority. And here's what the authority, it wasn't to make a lot of money. It wasn't to graduate with another accolade. It wasn't to run the company. They got authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of disease and illness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the world that they lived in, where they existed, they were given authority to beat down on the devil. So in 2023, why is the devil beating down on so many Christian people? Why are so many churches falling under the thumb of somebody that we were given authority over? Not only did they get authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of diseases, but verse 7, he told them what to do with it. Go and announce to the world that the kingdom of heaven is near. So he gave them authority to do three things. Cast out devils, heal the sick, and preach the gospel. You 
You, you and all y'all that have bought into this idea that Jesus Christ is the king. He's not just king of your house. He's not just king of this church. He's not just king of the church of God. He is the king of all. His glory covers everything. And you and I have been given the authority to cast out devils, to heal every kind of sickness, and preach the gospel in the world we live in. So why isn't that happening? What's hindering God's will for this world? You're not bothered enough. I'm not bothered enough. These disciples saw a devil, they attacked the devil. We see a devil, we run the other way. We see a devil, we invite it home. <laughs> we, <laughs> we see sickness, we call a doctor. I'm not anti-doctors. Please don't hear what I'm not saying, especially if you don't know me. I'm not telling you to go home and throw your medication out the window. What I'm telling you is their first inclination was not to go see the doctor. Their first impulse was not to pop a pill. What they knew was that they had authority. They had authority, but we're not bothered enough to get something stirred up on the inside of ourselves to take authority over what God intended for us to walk on top of. I want to ask this church a question. I don't pastor any other churches, so I'm only going to ask it to you. What are we here for? What gives us a right to exist? You say, well, the, 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 the Constitution says that we... No, 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 no. I'm not talking about in America. I'm talking about in the cosmos. I'm talking about our Father who has a million and one things to do every second. What gives us the right to exist in this format? Because what are we doing for Him? What are we doing for His kingdom? See, He doesn't just need the church to huddle up on Sunday and let me give you a pep talk. There's TED Talks for that. What, we, what he needs is somebody to get bothered by the world. And not just bothered because it bothers you. Well, I, I don't like the way these people vote. And I don't like the way these... No, no, no. I'm not talking about what bothers you. I'm talking about what bothers him. And what is going on in the world that he's not pleased with. If it messes with him, it ought to mess with us. If it makes him cry, it ought to make us cry. If it's bothering him, it ought to bother us. That's what gives us the right to exist, to have his heart so that his kingdom come, his will be done where? As it is in, yeah, hey, it's not for us to get there. It's for us to pull there down here. That's what gives us a right to exist. But you have to, you have the potential, child of God, to be like Jesus. And what has been put inside of you, and that's why I told you to tell your neighbor, you're going to be glad you sat here. Because what has been put on the inside of you can change lives. Hello. What has been put on the inside of you can change lives, but chances are you don't really believe that. So what's hindering your prayer life? What's hindering you, Mom? What's hindering you, Dad? What's hindering you, Grandma and Grandpa, from, from giving that to the people who need it most in your lives is because you don't really believe it. You're like that nuclear power plant. You've got all the potential power in the world. If you don't unleash it, it's just wasted on the inside of you. So I'm going to give you Nehemiah's example this morning. Are you ready? All oh, that was my introduction. Now I'll preach. 
Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Remember, he is the cupbearer for the king, right? This is him writing in the third person. Now, I had never been sad in the king's presence before. That, that's not a small detail, okay? The king had the power of life and death. Like, if you upset the king, the king could just, right? So the fact that he said, I had never been sad in the king's presence before means that when he walked in sad, the king's going to notice. Because he had, never, he had never dared walk in. Because here's the king's attitude. Can I just be frank? When you bring me my wine, don't ruin my mood. <laughs> don't be a Debbie Downer. You're bringing me my wine. You can bring me my happy juice. Just chill with the tears, okay? And, and that's what he's getting at here. Verse 2. Therefore the king says to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? If you're sick, you got a right to be sad. But don't bring a mess in here. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And I became dreadfully afraid. That's, that's important in, in my outline. And he said to the, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Before you talk... Before you talk to the king, <laughs> you get baptized in the Holy Ghost right then and start speaking and praying in tongues. So I prayed to God of heaven, verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, and I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of that region of the river that they permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now there's quite a few verses following this about Nehemiah going back to Jerusalem. The Bible says he surveys the damage and he gets it in his soul that no matter how bad this thing is, no matter what, what kind of work it's going to take to get the job done, no matter how hard it's going to be, he said, I'm bothered by this. Are you with me? I haven't lost you yet, right? I'm bothered by this, so even if nobody else will, I have to do something. See, he got so bothered by the condition of the world. When he saw it, it bothered him. And he said, I have to do something. And verse 18 says this, And I told them the hand of my God, which has been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to do good work. He got bothered. He decided even if i got to do it myself, I'm going to do something. And it inspired other people to jump on board and help him. That's what the church is. That's what we're supposed to be doing here on Sundays. This is why we have small groups. You wonder why we have life groups? 
Because you need to get connected to other people that will inspire you to do something. And I'm not just talking about going out and making uh, political uh, advertisements. I'm not talking about join, uh, going out and, and becoming some ambassador. I'm talking about do something. Sometimes the, all you can do is do something about you. Because you got stuff hanging off your life. And you need to get in a life group where people will look at you and say, I don't think you should do that. I don't think that's God's will for your life. So you will do something. You need to get bothered about your condition. You need to get bothered about the world's condition. You need to get bothered that our children are leaving the church and never coming back. That ought to bother you. And you ought to get so bothered that you say, somebody has to do Somebody's got to do something. And so you get around people on Sundays and you come to life groups and you come, now we're going to be starting a discipleship class on Thursday night. You come to these things because somebody can inspire you or you can inspire somebody else to do something. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but this world has lost its mind. We are living in dark, dark days. And if somebody doesn't become the light, how will those that are in utter darkness ever find their way out? This is why we exist. It's not just so you can come and feel good on Sundays. We have to do something. The first point of my outline is doing something is required for breaking through. Hello? You will never break through anything until you decide to do something. We've gotten so lazy that we think we should just pray and God does all the work. So what happens is we pray one time or we come to the altar one time and we have an oily cross put on our forehead and when it doesn't work, when we're still an addict, when I still have lust, when, when I still uh, go home and my marriage isn't fixed, we think, well, prayer doesn't work because I did X, Y, and Z, but I did... Listen, this is not a mathematical formula. You have to do something. But I promise you, God has more for you than you are currently experiencing. Can, can I help somebody this morning to, to bring you up to my level of thinking about my own self? I was walking the hallways of this church one day just praying, and I realized I'm living way beneath my spiritual privileges. God has much more for me than I am currently experiencing. I'm not seeing the sick delivered. I'm not seeing devils cast out. I'm not seeing these things. Something is hindering what I'm expecting to see. I don't want to live like that because John 10.10 10 says, yes, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus said, what did he come to do? To give you life and you can have it more abundantly. Nehemiah was troubled because nobody was taking the condition of the world seriously. And he could see that there was a problem. Look at your neighbor and say, do you see it yet? Uh-huh. When you look at the world today, do you see that there's a problem? Is it obvious to you yet? And yet, even though there was a problem, Nehemiah decided that he would do something in spite of what he was looking at. See, most of us have this problem. We tend to determine the quality of the day we're having, or the year we're having, or our life, or the condition of our world by what we see around us. Because what we see frames our vision. Can I hear somebody say amen? The problem with that is, when all you see You miss a lot. 
when all I see is what's in my view, there's a lot going on around me that I can't see. Uh, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because it all has to do with perspective. This room looks different depending on where you are. Tony is seeing something different than I'm seeing. You are seeing something different than I'm seeing. Okay? Uh, if you ever wondered where I used to sit when I was sitting where you sit, I used to sit right here. There's a reason I sit right here. Because I tried sitting back there, but I noticed I saw too much. And the more I saw, the less I heard. I'd sit back there and I'd see people. Back, this was the days before cell phones. When grandma still brought photo albums in their purse. And I'd watch her pass her photo albums around showing her grandkids while the preacher was preaching. And I saw it. And what I was seeing stopped me from hearing what I was there to hear, I'd see some little kid peeking up over the chair from in front of me, blinking at me, picking their nose, wiping it on the, uh, the pew, and what I saw stopped me from hearing what I was there to hear. So it didn't take me long to realize with my ADDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDDD
Amen? But I also need, as a child of God, to see that there's a solution to all the wrong. So if your perspective is too narrow, you miss a lot. Let me give you a bunch of points. When you, what you see directs you toward joy or pain. So, so if all I see in my marriage is the pain, I'm going to live with a lot of regret. Because if all I ever focus on is what she's done wrong and how she did it wrong and how, she, how wrong she was to me, then I'm, I'm going I'm to focus my life and, and direct it toward pain. We often get so anxious for the result that we fail to appreciate the process. What is process? Process is moving toward something. And can I tell you that Satan does his best work in the process. When you are moving toward victory, that's when Satan does his best work. You think it's in the valley. You think it's when they, the diagnosis comes in. No, 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 no. It's when you are on your way to a reward. You're on your way to victory. You're on your way to success. You're on your way to breakthrough. That's when the devil does his best work. Because that's when he gets your perspective to change. Because, because you, stop, you stop doing the things that got you to where you are. And you will start standing in the way of your own breakthrough. Did you hear what Nehemiah said? Nehemiah said, I needed something from the king. But because he called me out on my sorrow, he said, I was terrified. Nehemiah said, I came into the presence of the king and I was terrified. Can I give you two things that will stop your breakthrough? Two things that scare us from your breakthrough. Number one is unconfessed sin. You trying to pray out a devil that you invited home from the bar. And going to do it again next Sunday, next Saturday, next Friday, next time. You, you know good and well you're not done with that devil yet, and yet you're trying to rebuke it. No, no, you can't pray out of, of, of defeat and expect victory. I, I, say, I say all the time that one of the most, the most liberating things about getting saved was that I don't have to remember anything anymore. Because I ain't trying to lie to everybody about where I was and who I was with. It got so freeing when I didn't have to make up a cover story to, to cover the story, to cover the other story, and think about who would I tell that lie to. And I, When I got saved, I was just like, well, here I was. And I didn't have to remember anything anymore. The second thing, and this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my sermon, is unfounded fear. Because unfounded fear is a cage where faith is kept. Notice I said unfounded fear. There are some things that are genuinely fearful. But most of us have our faith caged in unfounded fear. Here's what Nehemiah said. He said, I was terrified, but I replied. He said, I was scared, but I asked anyway. I was scared, but I knew I had to do something. Some of us never get to that point. Some of us just get too afraid, and we stop. And we put our faith in that cage, and we never unleash it again. Nehemiah realized that what he was about to do could cost him his life, so he was terrified. But he still felt like he had to do something. It was unfounded fear. But he didn't know that. When... When, when I do weddings, you know, traditional weddings, I have the groom and all of his people in one room and the 
bride is somewhere else. I don't ever know what's going on in that room, but it always takes longer than it's supposed to. I have no idea what goes on in there because I ain't never been in that room. I've been in the other room all the time. We're always ready. We're always on time. We're on point. We got our story straight. I don't know what goes on over there, but it always takes 10 to 15 to an hour longer than it's supposed to. But I know over here in this room, there's always a joke going around. You sure you want to do this? Because one of the guys is always going, I got a car running outside. If you want to run... I'll take you wherever you want to go. I don't think they do that over, in the, over on the uh, bride's side, but on the groom's side. And why do they do that? Unfounded fear. Fear of a big commitment. Somebody say amen. Uh-huh. So, so you have to get unhindered from fear. Uh-huh. Realize there are things that you won't change, but you will outlast. That's good. That's good preaching, preacher. I understand that I come in here and I preach hard sometimes, and, and, and I build your, up your faith by shouting at you, we are more than conquerors. But can I tell you that I've also lived enough days to understand that there are some experiences God lets me go through that I don't feel like a conqueror at the end of it. Because some stuff I go through, and the only reason I went through it was to grow and mature and prepare me. Not for what I'm presently going through, but for greater victories that's still out ahead of me. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they weren't sent into the wilderness to change it. They were sent there for it to change them. And this is the thing that you need to realize, because every season has value, but not every season is fruitful. There is a time to live, Solomon said, but also a time to... Yeah, there's a time to reap, but there's also a time to sow. So when you're sowing, there's no harvest. And it feels like sometimes that you've went through long seasons where there's no fruit. But you have to realize that you're like a tree in the winter. You know what keeps a tree alive, right? It's the sap. And in the wintertime, the sap drains out of the limbs and down the trunk and actually goes into the roots. You know why it does that? To survive. The tree literally will allow what's above it to die off so that life can be stored underneath the ground in the roots because the life force has to just endure this season. And some of you don't know it, but your prayers are working. You don't think they're working because you haven't pierced a hole through heaven yet. But you're just put in this season to survive. You're not going to come out feeling like a warrior. You're not going to come out feeling triumphant. You're not going to come out beating your chest. Sometimes you come out limping with a black eye and a bloody nose saying, I don't know how I got here. I thought I was going to die back here, but I made it. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing Does anybody relate to that? Sometimes it's all you can do to just survive. Sometimes you have to outlive the season you're in. That's why you can't afford to make permanent decisions because of temporary setbacks. Don't, Don't let a highly emotional moment make you make terrible choices because this too shall pass. You know what David told us about the valley of the shadow of death? He said, we walk through it. He said, we don't build condos. It, we're going to get through this thing. You're not building a house there. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
But breakthrough comes when we overcome our fear with our faith. Nehemiah didn't just ask for a favor. <laughs> Listen to what he does. Now, it takes a certain amount of faith to ask a king to let him go back to Jerusalem, right? That's the first thing he asked. He said, King, if you would allow me to, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem, my homeland. But listen to what he said. He was terrified of the king. He was afraid the king was going to kill him. And he said, let me go back. And the king said, okay, I can do that. And then he says, well, since we're talking, how about you send a letter with me, makes me the governor of the land, so, so when I get there, people will respect my position and my authority. He said, okay, not only will I give you the letter, I'll give you a ride there and a police escort all the way. Well, king, since you're being so generous, how about you go over to Lowe's and tell them that they got to give me all the lumber I need to rebuild the wall and rebuild everybody's House. Now we're getting to the title of my message. This is where we get to the point where we ask. This is the point most of us never get to. Hello? He got the attention of the king. While he had the king's attention, he said, I'm going to take advantage of this. Most of us never do this because not only is he asking for the stuff that he needs, he's asking for stuff he's going to need in the future. He's asking for stuff that there's no way he could provide for himself. He says, not only am I asking you to supply my needs, but I've got something in my heart. And what's in my heart? I'm asking you, King, would you please provide the means for me to do what I want to do because it is a good thing. I'm bothered by the situation, and I want to see this thing turn around. Let me tell you, you have a king. And when you have his attention, you ought to take advantage. You ought to learn how to ask your king for big things, outlandish things, extra... Yeah. Ask big. Look at your neighbor and tell him, ask big. Uh-huh. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. The faith comes in in the asking. And a lot of people say, well, I just don't feel faith. Faith's not a feeling. Faith is an action. James said faith without works is dead. Yeah, faith is an action. Which brings me to my last point and the most important one. God won't fix what you can. Could it be that God is waiting on you to get started? Could it be you're not waiting on God? but that you're going to be part of your own breakthrough. Oh, see, I, my whole amen committee resigned on that one point. Nehemiah heads out, goes to Jerusalem. He has to confront enemies. He surveys the land. He casts his vision, and he rallies the people together. In other words, Nehemiah prayed. He asked the king, but then he got busy. So, yes, you need to pray. 
but you also need to do something. I'm going to say it again because I'm about to get mean. Yes, you need to pray, but you also got to get off your duff. Can, can I tell you something if it, and, and you not get your itty-bitties hurt? Do you remember when the disciples went to Jesus, uh, went with Jesus to the garden to pray? And Jesus prayed three times for an hour. And all three times he came back to his disciples and found them praying. Oh, he found them asleep. So from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., Jesus prayed and his disciples. Huh. And some of y'all be like, well, I understand that. By midnight, I'm asleep too. But let's talk about who we're talking about. Because in Luke chapter 5, Jesus meets Peter and Andrew for the first time. Bible says he stepped onto Peter's boat. And he said, did you catch any fish? And he said, we have fished. Do tell. little song we used to sing in children's church. Fished all night, but we caught no fishes. Ah. So they had no problem working all night. I quit. That, that was my mean streak for the day. Oh, yeah. They had no problem working all night, but when it came to prayer... They couldn't pray an hour because they were too sleepy. Priorities matter. You want to know why your prayers are being hindered? If you want to go to church on Sunday, you will be in church on Sunday. If you want to pray, you will pray. If you want to rebuke the devil, you will rebuke the devil. What you want to do, you absolutely will But here's the problem as it pertains to prayer. Most of the time, people don't seriously pray until an emergency comes along. Then they get serious about prayer. But the problem is what you don't practice in peace, you can't learn in war. What kind of an idiotic uh, military leader would wait until the war broke out to train his troops. You're losing that battle. And most of us don't get serious about prayer until the battle begins. And then we want to come to the past. Will you have your pastor pray for me? Where were you praying last month before the diagnosis came? Before they packed their bags? Why haven't you been praying all this time? Because priorities matter. And we prioritize everything else until the emergency comes. If you want to do something, do it. I'm going to say it again. God's not going to do what you can do. He's not going to fix what you can fix. You know what the Bible says? He says if you want to get to heaven, God's not just going to suck you up like an alien. He says if you want to get to heaven, believe. You have to do something in order for you to be saved. Can I get an amen? He said if you want to be financially blessed, you need to be a giver. You've got to do something. 
You need a healing? Here's what James said. First, pray for yourself. And if that don't work, then get the elders to come together, get anointed with oil, and then believe for healing to come. The Bible even says if you want friends, you got to do something. Be friendly. Look like you come into church and act like you spent your night upside down in a post hole and was baptized in vinegar and wonder why ain't nobody talking to you. You want friends? Be friendly. Not to mention, you finally do have a friend. You wear them out in the first 10 minutes because you never shut up. <laughs> Nehemiah had made up his mind he wasn't going to be hindered. See, see, I, I'm, not, I'm not in this thing by myself. I've got help. And, 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 and some of us have forgotten that he who began a good work. I didn't start this work, so I don't have to finish it. I didn't give myself this job, so I don't have to finish the work. I didn't give myself these kids... God did. So he who began a good work in me is going to complete it. See, I'm not by myself. See, see, that's the thing. This thing's not over yet. So I, I got to do what I can do and expect God to make up the difference. Because when I can't no more, he still can. And when I can't, when I don't have the strength anymore, his, in my weakness, he is made strong. So God is going to finish this thing. He had to maneuver me sometimes. He had to position me. He had to turn the fire up. Sometimes he has taken people out of my life because of what he was going to do in this season of my life and I've had to let him finish this thing because I got it this far and this is as far as I can go by myself but he who began a good work is going to finish it. So I'm going to come on up here praise team and make me shut up. I want to bring your attention to an Old Testament story in Numbers chapter 16 and I'm going to read some scriptures but let me set the scene first. God has called Two primary leaders in Israel. Pastor Moses and his associate, Aaron. And anytime somebody gets a blessing or somebody else thinks it should have been them. And there was a man named Korah who started gossiping. Started a rumor why are they the ones that get to talk to God? Why are they the ones that get to do all the preaching? Why are they the ones that's the leaders? How come they got pastor appreciation day? Don't we all hear from God? Can't we all preach? And so the Bible said, so Pastor Moses could keep the church. God opened up the ground, swallowed up Korah and all his family, and everybody that took the gossip. That's a good sermon. Everybody that listened to the gossip, he, he opened up the ground and swallowed them up. And don't you know that them stiff-necked Church of God people still didn't learn their lesson? Because they turned on Moses and said, Moses, you got God's people killed. And so God said, you want to see some killing? You ought to be glad God ain't went Old Testament in a while. Numbers chapter 16, verse 45. Here's what God said. 
Get away from all these people so I can instantly destroy them. But Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground because pastors love their people no matter. Another sermon for another time. And Moses said to Aaron, quick, say quick, take an incense burner and place burning coals on it from where? From where? From the altar. Pay attention to that. Lay incense on it. Carry it out among the people to purify them and make them right with the Lord. The Lord's anger is blazing against them. The plague has already begun. Aaron did as Moses told him and ran out among the people. The plague had already begun to strike down the people. But Aaron burned the incense and purified the people. I want you to leave this verse up for the rest of the service, please. Verse 48. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague stopped. He stood between the dead and the living. And where he took the fire, death stopped. Moses told him, go to the altar, take the incense burner, get some coals, some fire, say fire. Get some fire off the altar and take it and run out to the people. Oh, I just got goosebumps. And the Bible says he stood there between the living and the dead. And where the fire was, the death stopped. The incense burner was a priestly instrument that contained fire. I'm going to say that again. The incense burner that Moses told Aaron to take out to the people was a priestly instrument that contained fire. What's that, Peter? But you are a chosen generation, a royal, but you are a royal, pre a priestly instrument that contained fire. You are a Royal generation, a chosen priesthood. A royal priesthood and a chosen people. Royal priest. Jessica, you are a royal priesthood. A priestly instrument that contained fire. What's that, Paul? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that lives What's that, you wild-haired prophet John with camel hair and locust 
legs sticking out from between your teeth. I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, I'm not worthy to bow down and latch his shoes. I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you in the Holy Ghost and no, 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 y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. I preached all morning to get right here. He said you, Peter said you are a royal priesthood. Paul said that you are the temple where the Holy Ghost lives. And John the Baptist said that that Holy Ghost is like fire down on the inside of you. Now, child of God, you need to take that fire and run. You got to get out and stand between the living and the dead. Because where you take that priestly instrument, death stops. Stand between the... Do you know what happens when you pray? You're standing between the living... You're standing between the living and the dead. That fire in your priestly instrument can stop death. That's how Jesus sent them out. That's how Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. And to cast out devils. He did it like that because he said, you got something in you? You're more than you. You're more than your history. You're more than your mistakes. You're more than your, your, your mess ups. You're more than the stuff you complain about. And you're more than you see. There's something inside of you. And when you put it between the living and the dead... Death stops. And where did he get the fire? Where did he get the fire? Off the off the altar. He got the fire off the altar. Off the altar. He got the fire off the altar. He didn't just get it because he came to church. He made a visit to the altar. He made a visit to the altar. And it enabled him to stand between the living. I wish there was enough people in this room that already grabbed hold of this truth and can't wait to get to this altar this morning. I mean, I got to get some fire. I got to get some fire. I got some children. I want to stand between them and that, my cup. I got a marriage that's about to die. I got to stand between the living and the dead. My finances are about dead. I got to stand between the living. Some of y'all got some sick poke in your family. You need to stand between the living. Get the fire. Get the fire. They got it off the altar. 